A few years ago, author and pastor Craig Groeschel wrote a book with this title, The Christian Atheist. Believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. And I was struck by that book when I read it, and um, I'm still struck when I read through the chapter titles of that book. Here's a few of them. He says, you believe in God, but don't really know him. You believe in God, but not in prayer. You believe in God, but you still worry all the time. You believe in God, but you pursue happiness at any cost. You believe in God, but you trust more in money. (laughs) You believe in God, but not in His church. And as I think about those titles, and I've read that book several times, um, questions like this come up. What, What is it that makes people who have been transformed by God's grace many times live much like unbelievers. And could it be that we've accepted some things um, into our life because everybody does it. Everybody is uh, a part of that, uh, such as worry. Let me ask you, do Christians today worry? And you see, you all just nod as if that's just, yeah, of course they do. And the Bible says what about worry? I mean, it couldn't be any more blunt. Do not worry. What about attitudes about money, possessions, retirement? Statistics show us that there's not a whole lot of difference between Christians and the world in these areas. And what about marriage? Do Christians look at marriage different than the world does? What is strange about this is that God's Word is so encouraging in the promises that God has made to those who follow and walk with Him and allow His Holy Spirit to guide and empower their daily journey. So why would someone who has come to know the beautiful work of God's grace live without all the benefits that grace provides for us. Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is, he's, he's drawing these very clear distinctions. I think there's a part of him that can understand why people would uh, be wrapped up in the stuff that God's Word says, I've set you free from. He has just said things like uh, he prefers to be absent from his decaying human body because that would mean to be at home with the Lord in the afterlife. There's this future hope that he is looking forward to. He says that even though he he encounters a lot of suffering, he encounters a lot of pain, difficulty in this world, well, he knows it's temporary. He even says it's light. He walks by faith, not by what he can see in the here and now. Because of Jesus, he lives above the fray of the world. And he says, I'm always of good courage. You know, I just really don't think Paul did a whole lot of worrying. Right? He isn't in pursuit of personal happiness in this world. or He's not even in pursuit of worldly security. He puts himself in harm's way because of the gospel and... uh, He knows how fleeting the world's security is anyway. 
He's looking at the promises ahead all the time. Over in Philippians 4.11, he has learned to be content, whatever the circumstance. Verse 10, we looked at it last week. He refers to the rewards that are coming to the, un, to the believer when he appears before Jesus face to face one day, and all the perseverance will be uh, accounted for. It's not wasted, and God sees it all. And he paints this beautiful picture of the future hope we have in heaven. It's meant to motivate the life that we live in Christ today, moment by moment. And now he connects that whole scene of coming into the presence of Jesus face to face. With verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. The point I would make is this. Uh, we don't trivialize the Lord, we fear Him. We don't trivialize our Father, take Him for granted, make it kind of commonplace, ordinary. We fear Him. And we need to understand what is meant by fear, right? I mean, it's not a debilitating uh, terror. It's the recognition of His power and His authority and uh, we sang earlier about not fearing in this world, and I would almost say when we fear the Lord, we can fear nothing else, right? Can you imagine appearing before Jesus himself face to face to walk through your life together? Aren't you excited about that moment? <sighs> can you imagine face-to-face because of His grace that has covered our sin. We know that there is no punishment in heaven. We agree with that, I hope. There is no punishment. There's not a purgatory-like place that, uh, okay, you did some bad things, you're going to take a few lashes and then we'll let you in kind of thing. No. Our sins have all been covered by what? The blood of Jesus Christ. They've all been atoned for. We're just going to be rewarded. And uh, these, these rewards should motivate us to live in the power of His Spirit. And um, it's kind of an amazing deal when you think about it. God's rewards are earned on our behalf by the flow of His Spirit working through us. It's His Spirit working through us that does the things, and yet there are those rewards that come our way for the things that the Spirit actually does through us. He starts verse 11 with the word therefore, meaning that uh, what is following is connected to verse 10 or what he just said. We know that one day we will all stand face to face with Jesus to receive rewards, and just that thought should completely change how we approach each day. We live. When you think of seeing Jesus, what kind of emotion rises? To be honest, I don't think that I'm going to get to that moment and see Jesus face to face and say, hey, what's up, man? Right? I just don't think I'm going to be doing that. 
there's going to be this awe-inspiring, this, uh, this consuming well, fear. The word is phobos in the Greek. This is, this is this holy, awe-inspiring fall to my knees. Oh, my goodness. It grips us. It's not a fear that terrorizes us into a, some kind of a fetal position. <laughs> I equate it a lot to a a healthy fear that a child has of a deeply loving, yet no doubt about it, authority father in their life. It's all this authority and love mixed together. It's security. Have you ever known children with a father who is not respected with that kind of healthy fear? He has no real authority over them. They kind of run over him and they... They can kind of do whatever they want. They've kind of trivialized their father. Their behavior's out of control because there's, there's no established authority in their life. There's no, they're just running wild. Uh, and I would say they're unhappy. They're unhappy. Ever known a child with a father that is so hot-headed that they live in sheer terror of their father? They have one goal in mind every day. Don't make him mad. They're unhappy. God is nothing, nothing like either one of those. He is complete authority and yet so deeply loving. His very nature produces this, wow, this awe. Paul says, because of this healthy, awe-inspired understanding of the beauty of who he is and this one day coming encounter with him, we are driven to persuade others. I mean, how could he, how could we do anything else? It's coming. There's a day coming. We, meet, we want to persuade you the way you're living, not only for the yet to come, but the here and now, the way you're living, you're... Destructive. We, we must persuade you. When you understand the big picture of life here, you understand the big picture of your death, what happens after death, and then the eternal presence of Christ. When you get all that, you step back from the day-to-day minutiae of life sometimes, and you get this whole big understanding. Well, you just can't go on with the way the world lives. You just can't go on with status quo. So the point I would make is this. We don't sell or manipulate. We persuade. We don't sell. We don't try to learn these techniques to go out there and close the deal with new converts. We don't sing... 18 verses of an invitation song in an emotional way to try to coerce decisions. We persuade with reasonable, thoughtful presentation of our faith. The Greek word persuade means to fully convince someone, to believe something and to act upon it. Not just in an intellectual way, but I believe it so much that I'm willing to do this. Romans 8, it says, I am convinced, same word, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. I'm 100% sure about it. You'll never talk me out of it. 
We persuade people that He's real. He's the Creator. He's the Savior of the world. He's coming back. Now, how do we do that? How do we persuade people? Well, there's probably a lot of answers to that. One would be to present ourselves as a living demonstration of His love. The way we love people, the way we serve people, the way we let His love flow through us into the lives of others. People see God through the way that uh, we care about their need. And another is the willingness to endure, to be selfless and to say, I'm, I'm with Him no matter what it costs me. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to endure. Because I know there's a, I have this living hope, Jesus, and I have this future hope of heaven. And uh, people see that and they're, they're curious. Why do you give yourself to those kinds of things? Why do you give so much effort and time and resources to such a thing? They become curious. I also think it's critical that we as Christians understand the claims of our faith. To be able to articulate, to engage skeptics in conversations, meaningful dialogue with unbelievers. I mean, there's a lot of Christians today, maybe, <laughs> that simply avoid conversations about faith because they don't want to get somewhere where they don't have an answer. Right? They don't know how to engage the well-meaning skeptic, perhaps a very smart skeptic. And uh, I don't know how to engage them on the big questions of life. How do I know there is a God? Where did we all come from? What happens to us when we die? Where, what is right and wrong and who gets to decide? In my studies on uh, the main worldviews of our day, There's a lot of worldviews out there, but I've come to the conclusion there's really only two. One worldview is the one that uh, believers share, that there is a God who created this, this place and created mankind, and mankind rebelled and sinned, and uh, he uh, saw the need of mankind in our helpless situation, and he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to bear our sin and to do something that we couldn't do for ourselves, and that is pay the perfect price for our sinfulness, and give us new life and chart our course towards a future eternity that one day He's coming back and He is going to redeem His bride and we're going to live with Him eternally. Well, that's one worldview. And really all the other worldviews have their form of a, not a God redemption, but a self-redemption. If I behave well enough, then I am going to have a reward or I'm going to have some kind of better life, either here and now or in the life to come. And when you get into the root beliefs of uh, things like the New Age, Eastern meditative religions and Islam and humanism and Marxism and even the postmodern mind, you will find striking similarities between them all. They all have this plan of redemption that man can achieve through good works. It's either a Muslim paradise as a reward for observing the pillars of the faith, or, or it's moving society towards the utopian future of the Marxist, or it's the behavioral correction that the New Age presents in this kind of correcting karma. And uh, They all have this works-based righteousness that says... 
we can do it as humans. If we just look inside, we have this, what it takes to be good. And if we let it get out, we will achieve our greatest desires. Oh, but what if there is no goodness? Following this road of goodness of man can lead to all kinds of uh, dark and bad places. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? If you believe that man is good, you end up in bad places. Look back for a moment. Man's history is not one of a constant progression towards a utopian world of peace and tranquility. It's a history of bloodshed and tyranny and destroyed lives. And, but people today would say, well, that's the past. We're doing it right now. Good, right? We got it going now, right? We hear that sometimes. Christianity stands alone as the only worldview that makes sense of what we really already know to be true about the world. We know some things are right. We know some things are wrong because God has written this natural law into the hearts of mankind. His nature is what determines right and wrong. We call it the moral argument. And it's just one of many arguments for the faith that we can engage skeptics, we can persuade people with. I could talk about origins, evolution or creation. Well, let's just take some time. No, let's not. Okay. Uh, there's just ample evidence that would be persuasive to lead somebody to one conclusion. Each person is fearfully and wonderfully made by a creator and a loving God. It takes a, a huge leap of faith to believe in the arguments of evolution rather than those of creation, folks. But we need to know these things. We don't need to sell, manipulate people into Christianity. <laughs> There's truth out there. We just need to know it. Jesus is truth. And when He's revealed, there is this, uh, there's this something that makes sense. Oh, yeah, that makes sense of the world around me. That makes sense of our existence. And skeptics, come, let's have a conversation. The church is to be a safe place to process faith. Amen. The church is to be a safe place where people can come and ask their questions to search for truth. Verses 12 and 13, Paul kind of comes back to the theme of defending his ministry, which has been a theme from the beginning of the book and uh, taking on his critics. He says this, we are not again committing ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. We don't show off. We disciple people. He's been making the point that all that he does, his endurance, his speaking, his confrontations, they're all done without consideration of what is in, what's in it for me. What, well, how can I become more famous? How can my notoriety, my influence spread to more and more people so more and more people will follow me? And you Corinthians, church, you ought to be proud of that. You ought to be, in a good way, proud. That Paul is willing to put himself into the places where he puts himself because it's all about the gospel. And he's encouraging them to confront the imposters. 
You can recognize the imposters because their focus is how they look and uh, their appearance, it says. How they're accepted by people, how they can capture an audience. These are pastors who are always marketing their materials. None of that goes on today, right? They're working for ways to expand their number of followers. Perhaps teachers who will claim special supernatural abilities. Come and follow me. Some of these imposters have called Paul crazy. And Paul, you know, in his way, he just takes them on. He says, well, if I'm crazy, I'm crazy for God. <laughs> beside myself, he says. If I'm beside myself, it's for God. If I'm making sense, it's discipleship, it's training, it's, it's for you, church. Then beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter, we're going to take a few verses here today, we'll look at the rest of it over the next couple of weeks. Paul is now going to lay out for us what really drives him. Why he's so dedicated, why he's so caught up with the gospel. Why he's so willing to put himself in harm's way to risk everything for Jesus. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We can no longer live for ourselves when captured by the love of Jesus. You just can't do it. You can't really be captured by His love and say, well, I still want my stuff. And I, I, I love this word. This word translated as um, controls in the Scripture. Some, some passages, I mean, some versions will say compels. His love compels me. And the word actually just means to be held together, to bind. It can be used, uh, it, it, it's a word that says, uh, you're under arrest. Handcuffs are put on you. You've been captured. Your freedom now has been limited. In fact, it's been eliminated. You are bound. It's... The picture that because of the love of Christ has captured me, has enveloped me so completely. <laughs> it leaves me no choice. I, I, I consume, I'm consumed by it. I admit it, he's captured me. He's arrested me by his, his incredible, accepting, lavish, forgiving love. There's a six-year-old girl she was adopted into a family. She had a rough first six years of her life. And uh, from day one, it was rough in this new family. There were four other biological children in the family, and uh, she just couldn't get along. The family had this tradition of taking an annual vacation to Walt Disney World. The time came for the vacation. They gathered up their biological children and took their adopted daughter off to a family friend because they just couldn't deal with her on the vacation. It happened the next year and the next year. 
And about three years into this, the family had had enough. They dissolved the adoption, and the little girl became a part of a different family. And the new father heard of this, these Disney trips that she had uh, never taken, and he had determined, I'm going to take her to Disney World. And so the trip was scheduled, and uh, the closer it got, the worse her behavior got. It's funny what we do to kids, isn't it? been trained to believe that she wasn't good enough to go to Disney World. She's just reinforcing that belief. The day before they left, she was terrible. Her acts of defiance were at their highest. And she said to her dad, you're not taking me to Disney World, are you? And the dad said, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded. Are you part of this family? She nodded. Then you're going with us. And I'll let the father tell you the rest of the story. I'd like to say that her behaviors grew better after that moment. They did not. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all the way to Lake Buena Vista, Florida. Still, we kept the car moving and headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day. I love this. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, and lots of lines. Mingled with just enough manufactured magic (laughs) to consider maybe going again someday. Maybe. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn, of course. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. Aren't you glad you're His? Aren't you glad that He is a a God who has this outrageous love for you and I? Sometimes we might even call it a little reckless. God, you're a little reckless with that love. I mean, he's the shepherd who will leave 99 healthy sheep and hunt for you because you've wandered off. He's the dad. He's the dad who stands on the road and uh, when you come home, he, he finds his finest rings and his best robe and... Uh, He puts it on you and he says, I love you. And uh, you have all your list of what, how you want to make all your rebellion and your waywardness up to him. And he says, Shh, we're going to have a party because I love you. Corey Asbury's song, Reckless Love, puts it this way There's no shadow you won't light up. Mountain you won't climb up coming after me. 
There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. God loves you. God loves you. He even loves me. He bore your sin. He gave you life. He never gives up on you. He is so, so good to you. And it's not because you're good. It's because you're His. His love is something you just never get over. It, it, it just captures, it apprehends you. It changes the way you look at the world, the future. It changes everything. Let's pray together. Father, there's just something about the way in which you uh, have put your self out there and risked everything for us. Sending your only son into this world and uh, knowing what that meant and the sacrifice that he would make. And, uh, and yet you did it. And Father, I pray as we uh, contemplate these things and understand and cherish the love that you have shown for us, that it would invade the way we live our life, and we would say, I can't, I can't anymore. I've, I've been touched by the very love of God. I can't do this. I can't run in these circles. There's something that is so compelling by the love of God and the, what he's done for me in this, this Father who is so good. Father, I pray that the love of God seats so deep in us that it, uh, it just pours over into the daily walk. It pours, in, pours over into our choices. It pours over into our values. It pours over into the way we look at your word. It, it pours over into our worship. There's this, this uncontainable, uncontrollable expression of this divine fire of love in us. Father, I pray for a church that you would seek that love so deep within us that when people come into this fellowship that there is just something that reaches out and warmly embraces them. Oh, you have questions. Yeah, come, let's talk. Because I love you. Because of the love that has been shown to me. Father God, this is only done, this is only done by you, in you, through you. Father, as we close this service, we are so grateful for the price that has been paid for, on our behalf. And we worship you. We worship you.